We're on a thousand planets and spreading out. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fantastic Forum. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. And for the next hour, we're going to excite, entertain, elucidate, and educate you with news, information, and exciting discussion about your favorite geeks. This is Fantastic Forum. First, some genre-related news before we get to today's discussion. The latest casualty in the Marvel television universe on Netflix is Daredevil which just completed its third season. The announcement was made a little over a week ago, and speculation has run rampant about the prospects for transition of the show, as well as previously announced canceled series, Iron Fist and Luke Cage, to the new streaming service on the way from Disney. However, it seems unlikely. Information has leaked out in the past week about obstacles to Disney Plus taking on the shows due to contractual issues as well as reported bad blood between the film and television arms of Marvel. On his Twitter account, Rolling Stone TV critic Alan Sepinwall said that the one-sided relationship between the MCU and Marvel TV turned out to be sad slash hilarious. He also said that the MCU executives don't want the Netflix shows on Disney+. Plus. In a separate tweet, he goes further to say that the shows on Disney+, Plus are being produced by Marvel movie executives who neither like nor get along with the Marvel television executives who produce the Netflix series. Seppenwall's tweets suggest that Disney+, Plus will place its emphasis on newly created cinematic universe-based programs that are currently in development, such as a series featuring Loki, a team-up with The Falcon and The Winter Soldier, and another show about The Vision and The Scarlet Witch. The remaining shows on Netflix, The Punisher and Jessica Jones, are still in production, but information indicates these shows will close out upon completion of their current seasons. The CW's Arrowverse three-night crossover, Elseworlds, starts tomorrow. The event will encompass Arrow, The Flash, and Supergirl, and includes such DC Comics characters as The Monitor, Batwoman, Superman, and Lois Lane. It's also uh, much anticipated as John Wesley Shipp will reprise his role as The Flash from the short-lived 1990s television series on CBS. The shows are being aired outside their usual days and times, starting with The Flash tomorrow night at 8, followed Monday by Arrow at 8 p.m., and concluding Tuesday with Supergirl, also at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. New trailers dropped this week for upcoming Marvel Studios features Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame. You can watch them on the Fantastic Forum Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Fantastic Forum. And while you're there, if you haven't already, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We love to be liked and we like to be followed. Captain Marvel opens in theaters on March 8, 2019, and Avengers Endgame premieres April 26th. This pushed up from the initially announced May opening date. Of course, Avengers Endgame is the sequel to last year's Avengers Infinity War, and it is possibly the most hotly awaited movie of the past several years. Also announced this week from Marvel Studios is the latest project in development. It is Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, and this will be the first Marvel movie featuring an Asian lead character. Asian-American writer Dave Callahan has been tapped to write the screenplay, 
And a search is currently underway for a director. Marvel Studios' goal is to tie into Asian culture using an Asian cast, writer, and director in a similar fashion as Black Panther did with African Americans. Original comic book pages from the noted Silver Age artists earned premium prices at the Heritage Comics and Comic Art Auction last month in Dallas, Texas. Heritage reported that the auction generated close to $11 million. Among the lot items were the cover art for Amazing Spider-Man number 60 by the great John Romita, which sold for $288,000, and page 22 of Amazing Spider-Man number 18 by Steve Ditko, which also went for $288,000. The cover of Captain America number 109 by Jack Kirby and Sid Shores sold for a price of $264,000. One of the primary comic book issues in the auction was a copy of Incredible Hulk number 1 that was graded at 9.2 condition. The book went for a whopping $336,000 which was a heritage record for that issue. And Bernie Wrightson's art for writer Al Feldstein's Master Race sold to a Belgian museum for $600,000. An anniversary this week as Thursday, December 6th, marked the 39th anniversary since the release of Star Trek, the motion picture. The film marked the return of the Enterprise crew to a live-action production after the cancellation of the show from NBC at the conclusion of its third season. At the time, Star Trek The Motion Picture was the most expensive movie ever shot domestically. And it spawned a ton of movie sequels and television spinoffs for Gene Roddenberry's creation, which remains a pop culture icon. And sad news from the Star Trek family this week as we learned of the passing of John D.F. Black who died on December 4th. Black was best known as an associate producer on the original Star Trek series but was also a talented television writer. Among his many credits are Streets of San Francisco, Charlie's Angels, Room 222, and Hawaii Five-0 among many others. He was also the executive producer of the 1974 Wonder Woman television movie starring Kathy Lee Crosby. He was 85 years old. And on today's show, uh, we have uh, scoured the archives in the Fantastic Forum vaults for some very special interviews. Uh, We're going to start off with an interview from... Uh, the late Herb Trimpey. Herb was a tremendous talent, a uh, fantastic artist uh, who had uh, done a lot of work with uh, the Hulk. He was the first uh, artist to actually uh, draw the Wolverine character in a regular book and uh, just a heck of a nice guy. So without further ado, here is our specials, our last interview uh, with Herb Trimpey. We're here at the Virginia Comic-Con, and I am talking to the one, the only, Mr. Herb Trimpey. Thank you so much for being with us again, Mr. Well, Trimpey. I, it all works out in the end, doesn't it? <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> I had to be here. Well, and I am so, deli- I am so delighted that you are. Now, um, one of the things that I have heard about you from a lot of younger artists is that you are a true teacher and I think that this just goes to talking about what kind of guy you are because there's some artists who apparently have brought their portfolios over you have reviewed them oh, you've yeah. sat down with them you know why do you feel like it's important to take time to talk to younger artists and work with them in that capacity well I, I well I actually taught for a while after Marvel went bankrupt and I was out of work and I went through the whole process. I got a New York State teaching certificate in the general subject areas. Um, but I had a tendency to do that to begin with. I did a lot of subbing. I used to do, uh, even prior to that, uh, uh, show and tells, workshops with kids in school uh, at all levels, primarily. 
So um, I don't know. I, I just feel obligated. I, I feel like it's like it's an obligation. If somebody asks for help, <laughs> even though I'm not the best critic in the world, I don't always give the best advice because uh, uh, it's 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 not always applicable to that person's situation. Mm. It's only has to do with my own experience, you know. But most of the time, everybody, uh, I would say all the time, the, the artists are very appreciative. I'm always amazed that they would come to me and ask. <laughs> because I'm, you know, I mean, at the time that I worked, it was like, and most of that generation, it was collecting a paycheck. You know, there was no sense that, that it would become what it's become in terms of the blockbuster movies and the the very broad base of knowledge about the characters. <clears throat> a lot of these people that run around in costume actually haven't read the comics. They know it all through the movies, you know, and I've talked to people like that. But as far as the teaching stuff goes, I, I really feel obligated to to do it, you know, and, um, and I, I, I more or less... I enjoy doing it. I enjoy seeing their enthusiasm. It actually sends me home with with enthusiasm. So if I got a pile of stuff that I need to do and don't really want to do it because it's like Wolverine for the two millionth time <laughs> in the past one year, you know, then I, I get I, it, it. It inspires me somewhat mm -hmm. to catch their energy. I think. I think that's it's selfish in a way. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And you know, as far as your comment about Wolverine, the the misfit. I understand that John Romita had designed the character, but yeah, he did the first character sheet for the character. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, but you having had the the terrible misfortune to have actually been the first artist that's to it. draw him in a book, that's you know, right. then that's a necessary consequence. Yeah, the way the way I put it, the people involved were Roy Thomas, who was the uh, editor at that time. He came up with the idea of, for the character based on the animal. And then he and John worked together, uh, and I w was in the office at that time, so we all knew what was going on. Uh, Len, of course, uh, you know, uh, w was, was the writer. Len Wein. Len Wein, yes. And um, uh, in those days, we worked according to Stan Lee's method, which probably put Marvel in the public eye ahead of DC. It's the thing that really put them on the top. His idea, and this, considering he was a writer, this was amazing, he believed that the artist was the one that sees the story. So consequently, if you were working with Stan on a plot, you would just go and have a discussion. There was no written material. He didn't hand you a script or even a, even a plot or even an idea. You just talk the idea over with him and it came out wrote down what you remembered and constructed 20 pages as a movie director would do with a story idea. Uh, we were in total control, really, of how the story went. Of course, the editor, Stan, or whoever it was at the time would have the final word in, in, uh, in whether or not, you know, uh, we'll change that. or we, uh, That didn't happen very often, I can tell you that. So that was, that was one of the advantages of drawing the story. And one of the fortunes that I found uh, from being the first to draw Wolverine, because the visual is the ones that people remember. They don't remember the background stuff. Uh, but the way I like to look at it is, uh, I I was the Fra I, I was the Doctor Frankenstein. Uh, I got the, all the parts and I put them together in the final analysis for Wolverine's first appearance, basically. Well, now, but based on what you're saying, being able to tell a story, you know, the visual artistry yeah. and being able to organize that stuff is very important yeah. in, in terms of being a comic book artist and particularly yeah. then. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Uh, well. I think in any media, uh, movies, uh, film, of course, novels is all story. You know, pictures created through words, you know. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, I mean, that if you don't have story, you might as well go home. <laughs> you got nothing. 
I mean, as, as primary as the pictures are in a comic, if you don't have a story, it's not going to help you a whole lot. Uh, I, I think in comics, especially, the best use of story is in contrast to the pictures. In other words, not explaining what you already see, but the writer using the picture as a jumping off point to add to the story or help develop the character. It all can't be done in pictures, although you can get a rough idea. If a story is told well enough, you can actually eliminate the words and I mean, silent movies, right? I mean, you know, you had to be very careful about the way you told your story so that it worked. Because even though they might have the su uh, subtitle up there, the story had to be pretty damn clear without dialogue or uh, even back, you know, background noises, except somebody playing an organ or, you know, like that, or a piano, you know? So yeah, this the story is uh, essential in any form, uh, radio, TV. Uh, it doesn't depend, you know, what the subject matter is. It can be comedy. It can be, you know, fiction, nonfiction. It, it, whatever it is, if you don't have that sequential uh, uh, visualization in words. And in pictures, but you know, in words, you, you really don't have anything after that. So I, I think, I think that's very important. And I worked together. I worked with a lot of writers, and they were all very good. And I got along with all of them. There used to be feuds. I mean, I could tell you, if you know, there's dirt. There's dirt in comics, folks. There's dirt in comics. Imagine that. You can't believe. <laughs> but nobody's write, written about it. I would like to see a book instead of about the history of comics and who did this and who did that. I'd like to see a, you know, like a, a Jim Bouton Ball Four <laughs> version of the comic book scene. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. I don't know if you'd get people to talk, but maybe. <laughs> That'd be the trick, getting that folks would be to the talk. Trick. Yeah. I know. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Because, um, you know, of course, you're remembered for your astounding work on the Hulk, uh, you know, but also for G.I. Joe and Shogun Warriors. You know, I mean, the G.I. Joe stuff, when you picked it up, you know, a lot of that was still new and, was, uh, and fresh. Was, yeah. yeah. How do you feel about your role in helping to establish this yeah. as, uh, you know, I, these iconic characters that are loved to this day? I feel this way. <laughs> this is the way. Um... I did, a, as a fan once pointed out, the question was, how come you got all the licensed characters? And you know, I had never thought of that before. <laughs> I said, after the Hulk, it was just about, except for the one-offs, it was all licensed uh, characters, either based on toys or some previous, you know, fiction type thing that they were, they were based on. And um, I was, you know, I, I think the reason that happened is because I'd take anything they offered, you know, and a lot of the guys didn't really want to do those characters because they weren't cool, you know. They were toy-based, and they wanted to do the dark stuff or the traditional, the Spider-Man, the, you know, the Daredevil. Every, they, they were the prize titles to get your hands on. But guess, guess who gets the last laugh? <laughs> Because I did so many of that, so much of that stuff, that <clears throat> somebody will come up and say, "Oh, Wolverine! Wow! Da 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 da! Um, oh, hey, Transformers! Wow! Da 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 da! It's a broad base yeah. of characters that I'm associated with, yeah. which is I didn't really give it thought until I started to do shows, mm -hmm. and then it suddenly occurred to me that wow, people were actually paying attention to that stuff." <laughs> And now I'm getting this wonderful feedback from individuals that, uh, you know, just said, oh, you were the greatest on this and the greatest on that. And I know every artist hears that about, you know, one thing or another that they do. But I was, I was pretty stunned by that. And I said, man, that's really stepping in it, man. I mean, I'm, I did. <laughs> I said, here I am taking this stuff just to make sure I have income. And, it, and every one of those licensed items became very 
popular, not, not, not only, um, uh, well, the movies. The movies were, I think, essential in pulling comics out of the hole that they wound up in the 90s, you know, and I think, and I'm, you know, I got no complaints about that. And, 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 and one of the things is I didn't, I didn't draw Wolverine very much. I only drew Wolverine actually in the published comics over a three-page period. Three pages. <laughs> one panel in the first issue, like 180. The next issue where he appeared mostly. And then in the 182, where I think they took him out in the third or fourth page. I don't know. He was gone. And that was it for me with Wolverine. Yeah. Well, it was it. mostly about the Hulk and Wendigo. <laughs> that was the, the prime conflict was Hulk and Wendigo in those stories. I don't know what Roy's original idea was, uh, Canadian market maybe, uh, like um, Captain Britain was aimed, I guess, at a, a British market, a foreign market, but but it all worked out in the end, you know, and then it's starting to get to all this feet. I mean, it was a point where I was drawing, oh, you know, every commission like or a request at a table was, was Hulk. Yeah. And over the years, it, the, sh the shift, it, you could chart it, you know. It got to a point where it's the Hulk, 80%, Wolverine, 20 the Hulk, 60%, the Wolverine, 40 And down it went until now the Hulk is rare, and it's mostly... I actually got two Hulk uh, cover, blank covers to do today, and that was pretty unusual for an afternoon. <laughs> no Hulks yesterday. <laughs> Everything else is Wolverine. <laughs> well, you know. It's pretty much all Wolverine now. Hey, Wolverine is in. Well, it's all Wolverine. So, you know. But and, hey. And the other interesting thing to me is that I don't get requests for uh, the Hugh Jackman version. They're all the yellow spandex. <laughs> and I, well, I know I, he's my favorite. <laughs> it's like it's not even the same character, really. No. It's a totally different character. Hugh Jackman is way too tall. <laughs> way too tall. He, he is, isn't he? Yeah. He's a six-footer, I understand. Yeah. I was always thinking they should have, the same way that they made The Hobbit small yeah. in the Lord of the Rings movies, they should have shrunk Hugh Jackman down because he's a Wolverine, you know? It's right. Well, back in the day, they used to stand uh, some of the male actors on the box if they weren't big enough. <laughs> I, but you know, there's scenes with the women. Yeah. Well, but there's no way to like cut the legs off no, of him. Cut his legs <laughs> off. You have him walking around on his knees or something. I don't know. That might be that might be a little difficult. But I, his that first X Men uh, X Men movie where Wolverine, you know, was. Oh, that was great. That was so good. <laughs> that that to me that was it. That whole bit, everything they did in that was was perfect. They even snuck in a bub. They did. That's a bub. I was, I, was, right. I was too done with that. No, that's it. Hey, I'm not done with you, bub. <laughs> that's right. That, that struck me particularly because when um, one of my daughter's uh, friends, when they were in high school, uh, 10th, 11th grade, and she was, you know, where we live is when I, especially 30 years ago, was total country. <clears throat> and um, cow country, they called it, because <laughs> it was small, independently owned dairy farms. And, but one of her girlfriends, who was kind of rough and came from a tough background in that area, family there all her life, that's how she referred to me back in the 70s. Hey, bub, how you doing today? <laughs> hey, bub. I had no, and now here it comes full circle <laughs> with Wolverine and the bub thing. I said, hey, I know that. That's Leah. <laughs> it's, it's neat that, you know, if we're around long enough, sometimes that's the way it happens, oh you know? Oh, my God, that is the truth. It's like you, you do, you get, it's like being in a house of a million, you know, those mirror houses at the carnivals, you know? It's like that. Suddenly, oh, wait a minute, I saw that before, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you probably drew it. <laughs> that's right, I probably, I, it's, the, it's the, there's a lot of guys that have done more popular books. There's a lot of guys that have done more books, but there isn't a lot of guys that have done the variety of stuff that I had, I wound up getting involved in. I mean, I, I think Kirby probably, because he invented with Stan, they, you know, they came up with all that stuff. There are very few, and certainly uh, I, I think few who did as well. 
as you have done. Well, I, you know? I appreciate that. I appreciate that kind of feedback. And also the ride. <laughs> I appreciate the ride. You can explain that later at some point. Uh, you know, yeah. We'll 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 run it we'll run a side piece on that. Yeah. But hey, thank you so much My for pleasure. your time and for your work. Yeah. And uh, it's always thank just a great pleasure, you know, to see you and you run into your thank lovely you wife. A pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Ulysses Campbell here with Herb Trimpey at the Virginia Comic Con. All right. Uh the late Herb Trimpey and uh Herb was just a really wonderful human being. Uh, what he was talking about as far as uh, being appreciative of the ride <laughs> at a previous convention, uh, I had, um, it, it was one I was moderating some panels and they had uh, put me up at this hotel that was not far from the venue. And uh, the following day, I was on my way to the show and I happened to run into Herb and his uh, wonderful wife, Patricia. And uh, they didn't have a means of conveyance to get to the show. And I said, well, hey, hop in the back. I'll, I'll, I'll give you all a ride. As is the very least I can do for uh, such a uh, esteemed comic book artist. And, um, you know, we sort of became friends after that. And uh, like I said, he was just a heck of a nice guy. It's been a couple of years since he passed away. And uh, this particular interview had not seen the light of day. So uh, I'm going to have to get this out on the television side also. But uh, Herb Trimpey. And uh, you'll notice one of the things he talked about was the Marvel method. <laughs> and, I mean, he put it out there. Uh, the the uh, artists are deserving of uh, every bit as much credit as the, uh, as the writers uh, of these uh, various comic book properties. So, anyway, um, we are going to have to step aside and take a little break because, of course, Fantastic Forum is coming to you via WERA in Arlington, Virginia. And, of course, WERA is a community radio station, and we just celebrated our third anniversary of being on the air. It was December 6th of 2015 when we first flipped the switch and uh, WERA went live. So uh, very exciting about that. Anyway, uh, I'm going to step aside only for a couple of moments while we acknowledge the invaluable contribution of our underwriters and our sponsors. I'm also going to promote some of the other exceptional WERA shows that are coming up this weekend. But stick around because I'll be back with more Fantastic Forum right after this. And we're back here on the Fantastic Forum on WERA 96.7 FM. We're continuing this special episode where we have called the depths of the Fantastic Forum archives from the Fantastic Forum vault. Uh, we have coming up an interview that I conducted with a, a puppeteer and actor, Tim Rose. You may know Tim from those Star Wars movies. He was such uh, characters as Silicious Crumb and Admiral Akbar. So uh, without further ado, Tim Rose here on Fantastic Forum. Hi, Ulysses Campbell for Fantastic Forum. We are here at AwesomeCon DC. And as I think you can see over my shoulder, it's pretty doggone awesome. This is a huge day for the show, and we are fortunate enough to have with us on set Mr. Tim Rose. Welcome, Hi. sir. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Now, um, some of our audience may not be completely familiar with you because they don't <laughs> see your face, no. but everybody knows your work and who you are. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, among other characters, uh, I know you have been Admiral Akbar and Silicious Crumb and uh, apparently even Howard the Duck. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, all right, so you're a performer and uh, puppeteer and animatronics technician? Yes. Would that be a uh, fair assessment? Well, animatronics designer. So ah, <laughs> ah, okay. Well, now, and, and I was fortunate enough to have been the moderator of the Star Wars panel here at AwesomeCon earlier today. And there was something that, an uh, interesting turn of phrase, the way you described uh, animatronics, 
Uh, would you share that with our audience, please? Well, my, my joke used to be that animatronics were puppets that cost so much money, the producers were embarrassed to say they'd spent that much money on a puppet, so they came up with this big fancy name for it. <laughs> <laughs> but underneath it, all animatronics are just puppets. Mm. Well, but there's also the, the art and the skill of manipulating those puppets. Yeah, you know? it's, a, it's a matter of um, taking raw materials and an inanimate object and building it in such a way that it gives you the illusion of life. Mm. So you suspend your disbelief and join in with us and believe it's alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you really, I mean, before you got into this whole thing with Star Wars, uh, you were working with Jim Henson. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, he really brought me into the business. I, I started off um, straight after university doing theater lighting, and I had my own bag puppet booth. It was, it was a hand puppet booth that you could wear on your shoulders and then walk around so you didn't have to stop any place. You could go to where the people were instead of getting the people to come to you. And I wrote my own play. It was called The True Story of Prince George and the Dragon, which, funny enough, a young man saw when I was performing it in New England at Renaissance fairs and later did an extremely similar version of it called Dragonheart for the movies. Mm. <laughs> Where they had Sean Connery playing the dragon, mm -hmm. but the two of them were working together. And that was the whole premise of my, my little play was that um, Phineas J. Dragon, his name was, he was being judged on his color and not on who he was. And he was actually a vegetarian, so he wasn't going to eat anybody, but he scared them all. So he just went with what people thought of him, and he and George set up this scam where he'd go in and scare him, and George would come in and say, I will save you from the dragon, and <laughs> it went on like that. So is this sounding similar to a movie, uh, possibly? Kind of. Yeah. I'm going to guess that you didn't receive any royalties for this from the movie? I did. Oh, I was totally cool. flattered that when he saw it as a kid, he liked it enough to <laughs> want to run with it. So. And he admitted that that's where he got it. Well, I, I got to talk to him because he came to Henson's um, uh, to get them to make an animatronic dragon. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, we didn't do a good enough job and he went CG with it in the end, but I did get to talk to him. And he had grown up in New England <laughs> at the very places where I'd been doing my show as a young man. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, yeah. I run off on these little no, divergences. Not, not, so. not at all. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate having the insight, you know, because mm. um, I was, okay, I'm old enough to have been there when Sesame Street first debuted, right? And that was my first exposure to Jim Henson's work. You're that you know? old? I'm afraid so. <laughs> not even, I, I'm not even that old, not oh, 60s. I'm I, used, I used to have hair. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been, I've been a huge admirer of that work, and, and as a child, I did you know rudimentary you know puppeteering, but the skill that it takes to design these characters and the art it takes to manipulate them, because as you said, it's the imitation of life. You know, um, talk a little bit about what goes into the performance uh, and and making people believe that these characters are alive. Well. When you're doing the puppets, especially with Jim, we always had monitors that we would work off of. And one of my biggest problems starting out was that because I was watching television, I would sometimes forget that I was creating it as well. I would, you know, yeah. you, you'd start enjoying the scene so much that one of the puppets would stop moving. It's like, oh, that's me. I better keep, you know, I better keep going. Mm -hmm. But um, it really, it came down to as simple as you're looking at the TV, if you believe that what you're looking at's alive, then you're doing a good enough job. Mm -hmm. And there, there's techniques. I mean, um, with puppetry, you can get away with melodrama. You know, mm -hmm. um, if you did it with actors, it would be considered over the top and bad acting. But puppets are actually the best when they are doing caricatures, when, the, when they're doing um, cliches and things mm -hmm. because we all have these cliches locked in our brain of what a real live thing would do in that situation so when these fake things copy that it makes them more alive 
Is that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was trying to get into the explanation <laughs> of it, but it's a difficult thing to say in words. So, <laughs> Well, you know, having seen some of your performances, I mean, I, I get what you're talking about, and especially that idea of puppets being able to go over the top. Because, yeah. I mean, in fact, as you were saying it, I was thinking, you know, I bet that's what you have to do in some cases to, because melodrama's okay with mm. puppets. I mean, all that means with an actor is it's a bad actor. <laughs> but go, with a puppet, yeah. you know, that helps, I, I'm sure, the believability and, and live ability, if that's a word, you know, yeah, like, yeah. As, as to, you know, well, that the, character. On the project that can't be discussed, <laughs> some of the, the younger people in it who were in full body suit costumes and everything, mm -hmm. there were these two women who were being asked to um, walk very vampishly. Mm -hmm. And they were having a hard time with it. Mm -hmm. And I went over to him and I said, look, you're, you're thinking that people are looking at you, but nobody can see you. <laughs> you have the freedom to go totally over the top with this and it will just look wonderful for the character, you know, mm. trust me, <laughs> you won't look a fool, you'll look great. And yeah. they went back and they did it and this time, it's like the full swing of the hips and all this yeah, and everything. Right. And the character just looked wonderful, you know, mm. but they had to be allowed to release themselves yes. into these characters, mm. you know, so. Well, and it's wonderful that you can give uh, your experience, the benefit of that to other performers. So, um, of the many, many characters uh, that you have brought to life, mm -hmm. um, are there any in particular that stand out? And if so, for what reason? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple that stand out, not for good reasons. But <laughs> um, the one I'm the most proud of is Howard the Duck. Uh, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a flawed piece. When it first opened at the cinema, uh, Barry Norman, the British reviewer, mm -hmm. said, Howard the Duck, Howard the Turkey, more like, and nobody came to see the movie, you know, went away. But for years after that, I've gotten people come up to me and they always feel that they have to apologize for liking the movie. <laughs> it's like, don't apologize to me. I loved it. I thought it was, you know, that we did the best we could do with what yeah. we were given at the time, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm very proud of that character. Mm -hmm. um, there were other characters that I didn't get enough time to build totally successfully that <laughs> I was less than happy with, but mm -hmm. um, all in all, I've, I've liked most of them. So. Mm -hmm. Now, since you mentioned Howard the Duck, because I'm a huge comic book fan yeah. and was a fan of Steve Gerber's work on that character, um, did you have uh, familiarity with the comic book before you uh, did the animatronic? Okay, when they got me, they, they were trying to talked me into coming over to do Howard to help him out because they're having pro problems building the dung. Mm -hmm. And um, they sent me 10 of the original comics oh. to introduce me to the character. Oh. So I read all of his comics and I just absolutely fell in love with Howard. And then I came over and I saw what they were working on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, but your core audience are the guys who've been reading the comics all these years. And those are the guys who word of mouth are gonna carry it on, so let's make Howard look like the comic. And the director was, oh no, you can't do that. We can't have a cartoon character in the movie. Well, nobody done Roger Rabbit yet, nobody done any <laughs> yeah. of the, of course you can have a cartoon character, you just need to do it well enough, that's yeah. all, you know. And I really wanted to go with his total comic character, mm -hmm. but he felt that it had to be more humanoid, so we ended up with a compromise. That's, that's what I was saying about Howard. There, there, were, there were a lot of compromises all the way through, but we still did the story. I can tell you a very, or maybe I can't, this is television. Of course you can. Oh, well, some of it is I going to be exclusive content. I was only doing, okay, exclusive. Yeah, so, yeah, this so, is for yes. the exclusive content. <laughs> I was um, only ever doing the guide track for Howard because Robin Williams was going to do the voice of the duck. Oh, goodness. So we're shooting the scene with Beverly up in the loft and all that, and around the corner comes Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. So I invite him to come over and sit down and have a go at the puppet controls, because I said, Robin, if you can puppeteer as well, I can go back to England and marry my pregnant fiance. 
So he must have been watching me beforehand mm -hmm. because he sat down at the controls and the sound guy saw him. Oh, Robin's there, he's gonna say something funny. So he cranks up the volume. But Robin proceeded to do a voice for the duck very similar to my voice for the duck. Whereupon Willard screams out, Rose, you bleepity bleep bleep, how many times have I told you not to talk on that microphone when I'm out here directing? And the first AD runs over, he goes, that's not Tim Rose, that's Robin Williams. And quick as that, he goes, Robin, love what you're doing. <laughs> so he turns to me and he says, is that the way it is around here? And I said, well, actually, he's in a good mood today. You know, so. Oh, goodness. So he said, thank you very much. And he stood up and he walked off the set and walked off the studio lot wow. as well. Fast forward 15 years, mm -hmm. I'm doing Balgit in a Saturday morning kids program on uh, ITV over in England, mm -hmm. and I get sent up to London to interview Robin Williams for Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> so this is 15 years later. Right. You've got 15 minutes to be with Mr. Williams. If you don't get what you need, we're pulling the tape out and doing it. That's all you get, okay. So very nervous, very tense, and mm -hmm. I walk in there, I go, Mr. Williams, I know you don't remember me, but I'm Tim Rose, and he goes, Rose, you bleepity bleep bleep. <laughs> and I said, great. I always wondered if that had anything to do with you not doing the movie. And he said, oh, you bet it did. Life's too short to spend it working with people like that. <laughs> so wow. I now had these questions for Mrs. Doubtfire. How often do you get to talk to Robin Williams? My character looked up to him and said, oh, captain, my captain. I've only got one question. Could you say, good morning, Vietnam, just once? <laughs> and he got a big, broad grin across his face. And he says, sound guys ready? And the sound yeah. guys are like, yeah, you know, they were all wanting some of it too. And he just laid back, good morning, Vietnam, you know? And so I thought I was gonna go back and get fired again because I hadn't stuck to the script, but they decided that what I'd gotten was better than <laughs> the script they'd sent me up with, so. Sometimes you have to trust your instincts. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Which is something else yeah, that I imagine. Yeah, it gets me fired all the time, that uh, does. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. It's just the other people didn't agree with them. So. But I imagine that's something that you're called upon to do uh, it, it, just regularly in terms of what you do. I mean, because you, you've had to pioneer uh, a way to go about doing things that mm -hmm. in some cases, I mean, you're trailblazing, you know? Yeah, Wouldn't you say? Yeah, you, Make it up as you go along. Mm -hmm. People ask me, like, where did you study to do this? And, well, honestly, I, I give the credit to my father. He, he mm -hmm. was always into model airplanes and radio control and all that. So I learned the fundamentals playing on the floor of his workshop. Mm -hmm. But in so much of the film business, it's like, we need somebody to do this. And you go, yeah, I'll do this. And then they give you the job and you go, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? <laughs> you know? But that, that's the fun and the challenge, you know, is like first you get the job and then you work out how to do the job. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you get away with it and they don't uh, realize that you've scammed them, you know. So. <laughs> well, do you have, and I, I, I'm pivoting because I, I always think any time that I do a gig, yeah. I'm like, I don't know how I fooled these people into thinking yeah. that I have any talent. Okay. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you spend the whole time feeling like a complete fraud I and they're know. telling you how wonderful I you're know. being. But so I feel sick because it's about you. It's not about me. It's not the way I try to do interviews, but it's like, oh, wait. Uh. So it's nice to know that somebody who actually has talent feels the same way oh, that I no. do. A no talent okay. bum like myself. So thank you. Um, what are you working on now? Well, funny you should ask that. Um, I, I describe my career as I've spent my life making other people millionaires. And recently I made another millionaire, um, a friend of mine, Paul Zerden, mm. he won this year's America's Got Talent. Oh, really? And he's a ventriloquist. Ah. And out of winning it, mm. oh, here, okay, here's a good one for your people. They tell you if you win America's Got Talent, you win a million dollars, right? Yeah. What they don't tell you is they only pay you one fortieth of a million dollars each year for the next 40 years. Oh, it's an annuity? Oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm glad you said it. You know, I, I wasn't sure who we were talking to here. Anyway, but what he did get out of it was he got a three-year gig in Las Vegas doing his show. Oh, really? So everything that he'd done for that involved animatronics that I had made for him. Oh, really? 
So now that he's doing seven shows a night, <laughs> seven nights a week, you know, all yeah. this, um, he's getting really worried the stuff's going to wear out. So I've got to make backups for everything that I've made for him over the last mm -hmm. 17 years. So that's one of the things I'm doing. Um, I've been working on things we can't talk about. Um, I do stuff for Doctor Who. and Oh, yeah. I, I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Peter Capaldi, who's here this weekend, mm -hmm. I, I made the animatronic bad guy who is the first bad guy he met as the new doctor. Oh, really? He was a mechanical man. Yes, so he had a, like a that. wire cage, and you could look in there and see all of his mechanisms running around that and everything. That was really scary. And that was great work. So there was a, a guy with a prosthetic headpiece on, mm -hmm. and then my full animatronic double of him. Mm -hmm. And then the CG guys sampled some of it, so for a couple of the shots we could put my stuff into his head, so got oh, the whole wow. thing going. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. But I, I was really proud of how much pure animatronics there was left in the show because I, I figured when we were doing it as soon as the CG came in oh yeah they're going to sample me and that's it <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's going to be all CG and we won't see any of my stuff but we did see my stuff so it was good well it, it, one of the things that sort of troubles me because I, I enjoy seeing actual work and, and you're right the CG stuff is, is largely taken over um, mm. do, you, do you feel that animatronics uh, is being sort of pushed out in favor of, well, and not just animatronics, but stop motion animation. I mean, all those, all those disciplines that existed previously mm -hmm. are being lost now to CG? I, yeah, I fear that. Uh, my friend, uh, Nikki, Nikki and I made the Teletubbies originally. And she is 71 now, mm -hmm. and she makes the best full body suit costumes in the business. Mm -hmm. But the younger people that are working with her, they sort of copy what she does without understanding the mechanics of it, under, mm -hmm. understanding the, the physics of it, you know? Mm -hmm. they, so I, I do worry that like, when she quits, they were, mm -hmm. we're gonna lose a lot of really good stuff. I mean, the irony is that when we did the animatronics, we had to do it all in camera. So everything you did, you had to build it, but also work out the means of hiding it all so that yes. you could shoot it in camera. Mm -hmm. Now that we have CG, the easiest thing for oh. CG to do is paint a few wires and cables and rods out. Yeah. So the animatronics could go back to being much simpler, go back to being puppets again. Oh and use the CG to hide the means of doing it. Hmm. So the two could marry together. Yes. Unfortunately, the producers are in charge. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> who don't tend to be the most intelligent human beings. They just, oh, that would make money, so we're all going to copy it, you know, and they do that. And I'm waiting for the Messiah, the guy who understands the animatronics and the CG and knows when to use each and put them together for something that's better than either one of the two. Mm -hmm. uh, the potential's there, there's huge potential for it, but at the moment, the CG gets all the best shots and if there's something left over, it gets given to us guys because they feel sorry for us or something, mm -hmm. so. Do you find that there aren't as many uh, younger people getting into animatronics as there perhaps once were? Are they going into some other fields or? There's actually, there's lots of, young people wanting to do it. They, mm -hmm. they far prefer doing it to the CG. Hmm. Um, when they first started doing CG, they realized very early on that it was much easier to teach us how to operate computers than it was to teach computer nerds how to make things move. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of my friends went to work for Pixar and those companies, you mm -hmm. know, and did the toy stories and all that. Mm -hmm. But they've all come back to animatronics because it's like, well, we didn't get into this to spend all day long pushing the mouse around. <laughs> we got into it to build things with our hands and yeah. to sculpt and draw and yeah. all that, you know. Yeah. So even though they aren't earning as much money, they've, they've come back to the three-dimensional. And the young people want to do the three-dimensional. They want to do the sculpting and the building yeah. and making this stuff, not just yeah. drawing a picture of it. Mm -hmm. Our joke is a CD don't sign. <laughs> I mean, the guys who do the voices, they come yeah. and sign. But, <laughs> you know, there's nothing there to put in the museum because it doesn't exist. You know, it's just yeah. on 
pixels, isn't it? So. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Now, one of, um, one of your best known, perhaps the best known character that you've done is Admiral, Admiral Ackbar, yeah, you right. know, from okay. the Star Wars movies. Now, um, you didn't know uh, that other one, okay. God. <laughs> that was late night telling. That, oh. <laughs> that sounds like a story there. Uh, okay. But um, nobody got to see your face. Yeah. And I, I, I thought it was interesting during the panel earlier when uh, somebody asked uh, Dave Prowse about the likelihood that he might do something in Star Wars, yeah. you know, the modern Star Wars. And he said, you know, I would like to have somebody see my face for once. And I, I was <laughs> like, well, I mean, do you feel the same way? Would you like Because Admiral Ackbar got to be in, you know, The Force Awakens, but we still yeah. didn't see your face. Would you like somebody to see your face? I mean, it's a very nice face. I don't think so. Um, I, I suffer from uh, mild dyslexia. And I, I found that the puppets I can I can bring much more of myself out to a puppet than I mm. could when I was acting myself. I mean I did the acting at university so I'd be a good puppeteer. Mm. <coughs> but I didn't really enjoy it. Mm. Mm. Um, I was talking to Frank Oz one day and he said, uh, Tim, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. He said, I'm a multimillionaire because of what I do but I can sit down in any restaurant I want to without anybody bothering me because mm. they don't know who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he also said, he said, stick with the puppets because you can always be the next new thing while underneath you're still the same old bleep. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's been right, you know. Mm. I've, I keep doing new characters. And mm -hmm. I, I meet actors sometimes at these conventions mm. who have suffered not because they weren't good actors, but because they were too good. Hmm. You know, they, they've done a certain role, hmm. and the public can't look at them without seeing that character. Hmm. And they end up in the wasteland for 10 years, waiting for people to forget them before they get the next job, because they were too good. You know, whereas with the puppet, you can be really good and then just move on and put up the next <laughs> one, you know? So I'll stick with puppets, yeah. I got you. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, it's been a wonderful treat to be able to talk to you and to meet you. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you so much. It's been very mm -hmm. nice talking to you. Mm -hmm. And he enjoyed it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ulysses Campbell for Fantastic Forum here at Awesome Con with Tim Rose. Or he, <laughs> Ulysses Campbell for Fantastic Forum here at Awesome Con Take two. with with Tim Rose. <laughs> Take three. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that is just about going to do it for us for today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Of course, Fantastic Forum is also a television show. If you happen to be in the Arlington, Virginia area, you can catch us tonight at 8 p.m. That's Saturday nights uh, and Sunday nights at 8 uh, on Arlington Independent Media, Comcast Channel 69, Verizon Fios Channel 38. And if you can't get enough, you can always visit the website at uh, fantasticforum.tv. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. Again, thank you so much. Uh, stay tuned for Ethio Diaspora coming up next here on WERA 96.7 FM. And keep it tuned to 96.7 for the rest of the weekend. Have a good one, folks. Oh. And the show re-airs Wednesdays at 3, right here on 96.7 FM. Tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat station. <laughs>